a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. This is part of a study entitled, In the Beginning, God. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1. And if you haven't watched the first part, you probably need to stop right now. Just hit pause or stop and go back and watch that part of the study first. Otherwise, it's going to be obvious to you that you're kind of picking up things in the middle of the discussion. I had mentioned in that first video that there's several ways that conservative Bible-believing Christians can interpret these first Genesis of the Bible. In other words, they recognize that God did it, but they'll have different ideas about how he might have done it. And I also told you that I personally lean strongly towards what's usually called a young earth view, that God created things only a few thousand years ago, not billions and billions and billions of years ago. But we learned that there are those who lean toward what's often called the day-age interpretation or toward the gap theory, and you'll find godly people choosing each of these interpretations. There are also Bible-believing Christians who identify as theistic evolutionists, and I shared why I personally think that's kind of a weird choice to make. It's hard for me to understand, if they'll study it just a little bit, why they would do that, but we're not going to rehash all that right now. But let me say this. Some of the evidence for an old earth that has been here for billions and billions of years can seem very powerful and daunting when you first hear it, and it can seem to just overwhelm you. But I think it's important to balance that and remind ourselves that young earthers have a lot of evidence too. And I'm not just talking about biblical evidence. The biblical evidence, I think, is overwhelmingly in favor of young earthers. You have to really stretch and strain a little bit to re-explain things if you're going to choose ages and ages and billions of years. So biblical evidence, I think, is, is overwhelming on the side of young earthers. But even the evidence we find from scientific investigation... I believe it points to a younger Earth. Have you ever heard of the Institute for Creation Research? It's a group of scientists, young Earth scientists. They have a page on their website, and they list 14 scientific evidences for a young Earth. On another website that I looked at, I found 22 evidences for a young Earth. Now, some of that evidence gets a little too technical for most of us because we're not that into the science and, and, and maybe the math that's involved. So we have a hard time understanding some of this, but some of it we can, we can wrap our minds around, I think, pretty easily. For example, you're aware probably that many galaxies have spiral arms. And let me just, I'll put some pictures up here so you can see what I'm talking about. There are tons of these galaxies in our universe. And so the individual stars in the galaxy are revolving around the center of the galaxy. And scientists have learned that they revolve so fast that if the observed galaxies were billions of years old, as most all scientists believe they are, those arms couldn't be there. They would have lost their structure, you see, over that period of time. So some astronomers call this the winding up dilemma. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, young Earth creations see this is just some evidence that the universe really isn't billions of years old. Here's something else. Young Earth scientists point out that the Earth's magnetic field it's decaying, and it's decaying way too fast for the Earth to be more than just several thousand years old. Here's another one. You may have read about this. You may have heard about this. Scientists have found soft tissue and bits of DNA molecules in dinosaur bones, bones that are supposed to be millions of years old. And they realize 
wow, how on earth could soft tissue like that last billions of years? Well, it couldn't. At best, a few thousand maybe. Another bit of evidence that indicates a young Earth has to do with carbon-14. Are you familiar with carbon-14? The element carbon has an isotope, carbon-14, that is radioactive. And that means it's decaying and, and changing actually into nitrogen. It has a half-life of 5,700 years. That means that every 5,700 years, half of it is left. The rest of it is changed into nitrogen. So, when carbon appears in rocks, they're supposed to be more than about 250,000 years, which is only a quarter of a million years. I say only because in their time scale, that's not very long. Billions and billions of years, a quarter of a million is not much. But there shouldn't be any more carbon-14 there. It should have long before decayed into nitrogen. And yet, even in coal and diamonds, that are supposed to be millions or maybe billions of years old. The amount of carbon-14 is consistent with what they would expect in samples that were only a few thousand years old. Interesting, isn't it? Here's another one. Scientists know how much sodium is taken into the oceans every year by rivers all around the world. And when they compare that rate with the amount of sodium that's actually in the oceans in the world, it doesn't match if the oceans are billions of years old. In other words, if the older scientists are right, there's nowhere even close to enough sodium in the oceans to correspond to billions of years. Same kind of thinking, it's just another thing besides sodium, but there's not enough sediment on the ocean floors to account for billions of years of erosion. Here's another little bit of evidence I think is fascinating. Evolutionists will claim that men have lived on the earth for nearly 200,000 years as hunters and gatherers before they finally learned how to do agriculture less than 10,000 years ago. Evidence is pretty clear that's when men started doing agriculture. Doesn't that seem strange to you? And maybe just kind of unbelievable that for 200,000 years, men couldn't figure out how to plant seed? I mean, I think that's a little strange. <laughs> Here's another point, similar to that, I guess, but evolutionists will agree that men have only been recording historical events for a few thousand years. That's pretty obvious. We've only got a few thousand years of recorded history. But they claim that uh, monuments, cave paintings, records of moon phases, they'll say they found those things in caves and places that go back nearly 200,000 years. Doesn't that seem a little suspicious to you that the ability to record history would not show up until times that actually fit a young Earth model? Isn't that a little strange? Yeah. Another bit of evidence for a young Earth is the existence of radio halos. Have you ever heard of radio halos? They're tiny little rings found in rocks that are caused by radioactive minerals. And they actually, it turns out, they provide evidence that layers of geological formation had to occur very quickly and relatively recently, not over hundreds of millions or billions of years that geologists have guessed that it took for those rocks to form. I have read that these little radio halos have demonstrated that the decay rates of radioactive elements may not have always remained constant, which kind of messes with radiometric dating techniques, if you see what I mean. I bring this up not because it's easy to understand, it really isn't, but there was a young Earth scientist who discovered this phenomenon. His name is Dr. Robert Gentry. He died last year. But I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Robert Gentry in 1973. It was a small group of men who were studying creation at the University of Tennessee at the time. 
And I was just blown away by his description of these little tiny radio halos. I'd never heard of them before. I didn't know what he was talking about, but it was pretty amazing. Now, I need to just tell you up front, secular scientists, of course, have savaged his work and his reputation. They've been brutal in the way they treated him. But what would you expect? He believed in God, and he had a literal understanding of Genesis 1. Secularists can't tolerate that. No. So they come up with all kinds of explanations for everything that I've just mentioned. I mean, usually there'll be some jargon and scientific-sounding terminology, a lot of ridicule, because they hope they can intimidate anybody who disagrees with them. That's how they get by with their story, and they've succeeded enormously. One other little bit of evidence is the moon is gradually receding away from the Earth. And the young Earth scientists say, you know what? The rate of recession of it moving away doesn't allow it to have been there for billions of years. That just couldn't, it won't work. You may say, Steve, could you give us some more detail about all this? Well, actually, probably not. I mean, the truth is, some of this stuff I don't really understand very well. I'm just reporting to you some of the things that some of the young earth scientists have been finding. But these men are men of science who believe Genesis 1-1. So these are just a few points that the young earthers make. There's several others that seem to point to a young earth. And, of course, the old earthers are going to try to refute every point. So my point in sharing all this is I believe there's quite a bit of scientific evidence that supports a young earth. But to me, there's a more important line of evidence that we Christians need to consider very carefully that I believe supports a young earth, and that's biblical evidence. Whether we understand the scientific evidence or not, we better study God's Word. We Christians claim to believe this is God's Word, right? God's book. God's the one who gave these words to His men to write down. He inspired them to write down what He wanted written down. One biblical argument used by young earthers that I think is pretty strong is the Bible teaches that death entered the world as a result of Adam's sin, right? You remember that? Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, the Bible seems to me to clearly indicate that there was no death at all prior to sin coming into the world. And then the curse came on the whole creation. Well, then how can you have billions and billions of years of dying animals before Adam and Eve were ever even created? Now, I can tell you how the old earthers would respond to that. They'll say, well, maybe the death that's talked about is only the death of men. Because in Romans 5.12, it concludes it by saying death spread to all men. So maybe the animals were not living forever, but Adam and Eve were until death came through sin. Yeah, maybe just doesn't seem like a natural way to read it to me. Young earthers would respond to that. God said his creation was good, didn't he? How can the death of billions of animals over billions of years before man even came on the scene, before sin, how can that be a good thing? When death in the Bible is portrayed as a curse, it's an enemy, right? It's a consequence of sin. It's not a good thing. Not only that, but listen, guys, God's really clear that in the future, when Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom, and when he restores all things, the animals won't be killing each other anymore. Isaiah makes that clear. He says the wolf and the lamb are going to feed together. The lion will eat straw like the bull. You remember that? God's going to restore his creation. How? To the way it was before sin entered it. Makes sense, doesn't it? In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about 
not just men, but the entire creation groaning. Why? Because it's under the curse that came when sin entered the world. But if the old earthers are right, you have death, destruction, groaning in the world long before Adam and Eve ever came into the picture. Seems to me to be a serious biblical problem to me. And then there's Exodus 20. You remember Exodus 20, Ten Commandments? When God gave Moses the Sabbath commandment, which he gave him to give Israel to keep them separated from the rest of the world, he said, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in, listen, this is this is rationale, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sounds pretty much like God created everything in six literal days, doesn't it? That's to me. I want to come back to the, that verse in just a minute. But, but in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The beginning of creation, he said. Sounds like Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were part of the beginning of creation, not millions and millions or billions of years after the beginning of creation, you see. Now, I told you there are men of God whom I respect who disagree with me about all this, and I feel like I need to try to be fair to those who believe that creation happened billions of years ago. They have their reasons. You remember what I said earlier, that God's creation, like God himself, I said this in the first video, is, is complex. And we're not likely to be able to really understand a lot of things. There are questions that none of us can answer. But let me illustrate that. Uh, if we believe that the astronomers are right about the distance of the stars and galaxies, in other words, if we believe that some of them are literally billions and billions of light years away, you know what that means? It means it's taken maybe a billion years for the light from them to reach us. But if they weren't there until a few thousand years ago, then the light couldn't have reached us yet. So we couldn't be seeing them yet. You see? See how that works? Now, what some young earthers have speculated is, hey, well, maybe light traveled a lot faster in the early days of creation. And they give you reasons why they think that could have been true. But that creates lots of extra complexity. For example, in physics, because the speed of light turns out to be one of the constants God seems to have engineered into his universe. And if you change the speed of light, other things change too. Do you remember Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared? Do you remember that equation? Do you remember that in that equation, c represents the speed of light? It's a huge number. And when you square it, you get a really monstrous number, which explains, if you want to chase that rabbit, why you get so much energy from changing little tiny bits of matter in the nuclei of atoms into energy in nuclear bombs. But anyway, some creationists think that maybe that hypothesis that light somehow changed its speed maybe isn't the best answer because it introduces a lot more com complex problems. But other young earthers have said, well, God could have put them out there, those galaxies, billions of years, light years away, but also caused the light to be created in transit, you know, on the way here. So at the same time he created them, he just created light waves so that we could see them. But what that does is give us the impression that God's giving us anyway with his creation and his light that creation is billions of years old when it really isn't. And the old earthers will say, well, well, why would God create his universe in a way to make us think it's old if it really isn't? Isn't that deceptive of God? Why would he do that? 
But the young earthers would say, well, not really. It's no more deceptive than a, let's pretend for just a minute and do a thought experiment and suppose that an angel could somehow carry us back into the past so we could see Adam. And the angel said, you see Adam over there? Yeah. How old do you think he is? Oh, I don't know. He looks maybe 20, 25 years old. Angel said, nope, two minutes old. He was just created. <laughs> or how old do you think that tree is over there? We say, oh, maybe 50 years. And the angel said, no, it's just three days old. <laughs> so when Adam was only a few minutes old, he probably looked like he was at least 20 years old, don't you think? Plants and trees being only a day or two, they might have had the appearance of being decades old. So maybe God chose, now listen, this seems reasonable to me, maybe God chose to demonstrate his power and glory by creating the universe to be of such immense size that would appear to be billions of years old, even though it really isn't. really isn't a deception. Why is it a deception? Because he reveals the truth about it in his word, you see. But some old earthers will introduce another problem. They say, wait a minute. One of the problems with the idea of light photons being created in transit at the same time that the galaxies were created out there is that astronomers can see things happening in deep space. For example, the Hubble Space Telescope was able to find a supernova. It's so far away that its light would take 10 billion years to get here, but it's something happening. And it looks like it happened about 10 billion years ago. But if the universe is only a few thousand years old, then that event never really happened. God would have just had to create all the photons in transit that would kind of be like a movie or something. It would imitate an event like that, but it really didn't happen. It just seemed to have happened. And so it may look even more deceptive to some people for God to have done it that way. Some young earth scientists will come back and say, well, it's possible there was a time dilation in the early days of creation caused by the expansion of the universe. You know, when the Bible talks about stretching out the heavens, and maybe the intense gravitational effects cause some, some messing with time. You remember Einstein's theory of relativity discovered that time slows down at speeds near the speed of light. Remember that? In the presence of large gravitational fields. You see what's happening here? <laughs> Going back and forth and back and forth, and it's getting complicated, and it gets complex from a scientific perspective. And eventually, we have to come to the place where we just say, I believe you, God. I believe you did it the way you said you did it. I can't answer all the questions. Someday, maybe I'll know. I'm just trusting you, God. Doesn't that sound like a pretty good position? I, that doesn't mean we shouldn't study these things. Now, guys, don't, don't get me wrong. I think God's thrilled when we study His creation. But we study as those who realize we may not be able to get all the answers until later. And that's okay. Here's another argument that some of the old earth people will argue. They'll say, wait a minute. You can't take this literally. Are you telling me that in one 24-hour period, Adam tended the garden and named all the animals and had a rib removed and married Eve all in one day? And the young earthers might reply, well, verse 19 says, Adam named only the animals that God brought to him. And though in verse 20, it does say he gave names to all livestock and birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So maybe at least on the sixth day, God only brought to him the ones that Adam might have considered to be possible helpers. He may not have brought every single species on that day. Also, some of the old earth guys will say, yes, you're right. We're interpreting Genesis 1 in light of what we believe scientists have discovered. But all Christians do that with other verses 
For example, they'll talk about passages in the Bible that talk about the earth being fixed and immovable. And they'll say, we know it's moving all the time. It's revolving around the sun. It's not fixed and immovable. But young earthers would respond to that and say, well, it's fixed in relation to us and it's fixed in relation to its orbit. It doesn't go out of the path God designed for it to be in. It's fixed in that sense. And we recognize that some things like this are figures of speech. We all do. The sun's setting, the sun rising. We don't have to say every evening, well, the sun's not really setting. You see the earth is spinning on its axis. No, we don't have to go through all that. We know that's a figure of speech. And, and maybe in this case, God's using what he says that is fixed to say there's some things men can't change. And one of them is the way God's put the earth in its place. You're not going to change that. Yeah, that's reasonable. But let me just remind us one more time. I've mentioned several different ways that Genesis 1 can be interpreted. I think I need to keep bringing us back to an understanding that there are two different groups of people when you start talking about creation. There's one group of people, one camp that says science can explain everything without God. They think they can explain how the universe, how the earth, how life got here into existence without God. They're the naturalists. Now, they're materialists. They, they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in God. Now, they may, not, they may not know all the answers, but they say, someday we will. I call it the science of the gaps kind of thing. <laughs> but they think someday they'll understand it. And I feel like I need to say very gently and very lovingly, God calls people who try to leave him out fools. That's not a very gentle word, is it? Fools. But that's what God calls them. But there's another group of people, and that would include young earth, day age, gap theory, maybe the theistic evolutionists, and they would say none of this could be here without a creator. Some of them may have accepted the idea of billions of years, but they still say it couldn't have happened without God. God did it. And if they're trusting Jesus, they're our brothers in Christ. So we've got to be very gracious to people that disagree with us. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? Even if we think they're mistaken about the details, even if we don't see their reasoning, we need to be very gracious. So I see the entire field separated into creationists and naturalists, and I think we need to be patient and with, the, with the confusions and disagreements we find within the creationist group. There are just a lot of questions we can't answer. Let me add one more thing that God's done in the last few decades that underscores the words he spoke in Romans 1.20. Remember, we looked at that verse earlier. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. That was true in the first century. It's been true throughout history. But listen, in our day, it's more true than ever. There's more evidence than ever. What God's done is raised up men to study molecular biology, and they found things on the molecular level that can't be explained any other way except God did it. If you're interested in learning more about that, I've got some videos in the Veritas 2020 series you ought to watch. It goes into more detail. He's also raised up men to study cosmology. And they've learned things about the universe just in recent decades that cannot be explained any other way except God did it. I've got, I've got a video on that one too. It's called the fine-tuning of the universe. The point is God's left no excuse for the people who want to try to leave him out. They're without excuse, just like he said in Romans 1. Let me just chase one more little rabbit here for just a few seconds that I think may be worth talking about for a minute. We young earth conservative Christians sometimes will mock and ridicule others ourselves. Sometimes we'll ridicule, for example, the, the, the idea of a Big Bang Theory. We just kind of roll our eyes and ridicule it. And I realize why we do that. It seems like a way to take God out of the picture and, and, and come up with a way of explaining how God, things got here without God. But listen, we need to be aware of this. It's good to know that when scientists first began to realize 
that the laws of physics and the observations they were making of the universe made it very clear that the universe had to have a beginning, that was a shock to the atheists. It was not good news for the atheists because most of the atheists who knew how to think knew that if the universe had a beginning, it had to have a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. They understood that. And they didn't like that. They didn't want the universe to have a beginning. They wanted it to be eternal. And now scientists figure, no, it had a beginning. Now, I know some atheists will try to say, well, if you say God's the cause, you're just moving the question back a step because then you've got to ask who caused God. What's the cause of God? But that answer really is simple. God doesn't have a cause because he doesn't have a beginning. The Bible makes that very clear. He's eternal. It is true. Everything that has a beginning has to have a cause. But God doesn't have a cause because he doesn't have a beginning. He just exists. He always has. He always will. He is the great I am. He just is. He's the eternal one. Maybe you heard some Christians say, sure, I believe in the Big Bang. God said it. Bang. There it was. <laughs> That's not bad, is it? That's pretty good theology. There's a guy named Robin Collins. He's chairman of the Department of Philosophy at Messiah College in Granham, Pennsylvania. He's pointed out that secular scientists say, based on what they understand about the laws of physics, that if the initial explosion of the Big Bang, now this is what the scientists think they can see, it's what God's allowed them to, to see even in their blindness, that if the initial explosion of the Big Bang had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th power, I'm telling you, you can't grasp how infinitesimally small that is. The universe would either have quickly collapsed back on itself or it expanded too rapidly, too rapidly for stars to form. So in either case, there would be no life, that's for sure. And he says that an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 60th can be compared to firing a bullet at a one-inch target on the other side of the observable universe, 20 billion light years away, and hitting the target? No. No, those kind of things are impossibly, inconceivably unlikely. All they can do is try to cover it up or say, God, I submit, you're God, you had to do this. So can we say that our universe and life is here by just pure chance? Well, yeah, you can say anything you want to say, I guess, but it's absurd, isn't it? If you start studying it in more detail, the most logical explanation there is, the most scientific explanation, is there's an incredibly brilliant creator God who put it all together so we could discover it and give him glory. And guys, all of us, especially our kids, we need to know this stuff. We're being brainwashed by propaganda. We're living in a day when mental discipline is in short supply too. We're not encouraged to discipline our minds and study things like this. It's easier just to go with the flow. You know one of those characters on Scooby-Doo, you can imagine him saying, come on, dude, I don't want to have to think so much. It hurts my head. You remember that? <laughs> That's the way a lot of us are today. But God's done so many awesome things for us to see. And so many of us just don't have a clue. But I believe when we start studying what he's done and what he's shown us in his creation and in his word, it takes a blind, dogged, stubborn commitment to methodological naturalism for a thinking person to ignore God. But that's what many so-called scientists are doing. They don't want a God out there who might hold them accountable for their behavior. And God says, you're a fool. Of course, a lot of them might suspect that there's a God behind all this, and then they're terrified that they'll lose their jobs if they say anything, so they just keep quiet about it, which is tragic. All right, let's look at these verses one more time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Those who support the gap theory might say a couple of things right here. Some point out that the Hebrew word for without form is tohu. So the earth was tohu. But they point out that in Isaiah 45, we read, Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He's established it. He created it not in vain. And the Hebrew word is again tohu. He formed it to be inhabited. And they will say, see, it wasn't created tohu. It became tohu. And they'll point out that the verb translated was in verse 2 is the same verb that sometimes, at least occasionally, can be translated became or came to pass. And from that, if I understand them correctly, they conclude there could have been millions or billions of years between verse 1 and verse 2. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that theory? Well, and before I say this, remember, all the theories about how God did his creation lead to questions we find hard to answer. We've already looked at Exodus 20, verse 11. Let's look at it one more time. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. Verse 1 says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The gap theory says that was followed by billions of years before verse 2. But in Exodus 20, 11, he says... He, in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. It sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? He created the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. That means all the stars and galaxies, all forms of life, doesn't it? Seems clear to me. I, I know I could be wrong, but it seems clear. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning, the first day. Interesting, isn't it? On day one, God creates light. But wait, how could there be light without the sun? He doesn't create the sun until the fourth day. What? So whoever wrote these verses must have been really dumb, huh? Because... <laughs> Everybody knows that light comes from the sun, right? You can't have light without the sun, can you? <laughs> I mean, everybody knows that. That's why some people say, well, he didn't really make the sun on the fourth day. They say he had already made it. He just cleared away the clouds above the earth so the sun could be seen. It was actually already there. But wait, <laughs> in verses 14 through 19, where he talks about the fourth day, he says he made the sun and the moon on the fourth day, and he set them in the heavens on the fourth day. We have an apparent problem here because everybody knows that light on earth comes from the sun, doesn't it? But apparently he didn't even make the sun until the fourth day. Interestingly, he made the plants on the third day. Now listen, of course you know this. It's not a modern discovery that light comes from the sun, is it? I mean, even Adam, who never had a science class, knew that when the sun went down, it got dark. And when it came up, it got light. And if he walked behind a tree, it was shady. And if we walked into a cave where the sun couldn't reach, it got dark. He knew that light came from the sun. Had to shade his eyes to look at it or look toward it. So why would Moses write that light was created first? He knew the sun wasn't there. Well, Maybe it's because, contrary to our natural thinking, God really did create light before he created the sun and chose to reveal that to us right here. 
Maybe it's God's way of saying, I want you to realize I am the light. I am the source of light. I create the light. Don't give too much credit to the sun. I don't want you worshiping that thing. I created it and it does give light, but it just happens to be another of my creations. And to emphasize that point, I'm creating light first. This made the sun a little later. Maybe. It's also interesting in, in thinking about this, when God talks about the new heavens and the new earth that he creates, Revelation chapter 22, he says there'll be no need for the sun. You remember that? Why? Because he said the Lord God will be their light. So if God's going to end things that way, maybe he started things that way. Makes sense. By the way, some of the old earth creationists will say that the words evening and morning for the first few days imply that Moses did not intend for us to take this literally since there was no sun to mark a literal evening and morning. Young earthers would say God could have the earth spinning and his light shining on it. So there still could be a day and night effect even without the sun. God can do that. That wouldn't be a big deal. Second day, verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And again, this tends to be confusing to us. What does God mean by water above the expanse or water above the firmament or above the heavens? Well, we don't know for sure, but some speculate that when God first created the earth, this, this first week, he put a great canopy of water vapor. Now, don't, don't think water droplets. We're not talking about fog. We're talking about water vapor, water molecules. In other words, it would be transparent, but that God caused this vapor canopy to be there to protect the earth from some of the harmful ultraviolet rays early, early on in the creation. Kind of provided a sort of global, what you might call a greenhouse effect, only in a good way, keeping the entire earth at a comfortable temperature. That could explain fossils that scientists have found in polar regions, for example. And maybe it would also explain why some of the early men in, in the early part of mankind uh, aged very slowly and lived hundreds of years. And then when the flood came in Noah's day, the canopy was removed. God poured that water down on the earth, 40 days of rain, as well as breaking up the deeps, of course, and, and the protection was removed. And we immediately see men's lifespans begin to go down. That's speculation, but it does make some sense. It seems to fit what we find in Scripture. Now we come to the third day, verse 9. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So on the third day, he scoops out some of the earth and shapes the earth to form the continents and the oceans and causes the land to sprout plants. And then we have the fourth day in the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. I mentioned before, some interpret this as clearing out the clouds so the sun, moon, and stars could be seen. The idea would be that they were actually created in verse 1 when God said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth before the days of creation actually started. Or maybe that he made them on the first day when he made light. So they're speculating about that. It could be true. But when he says on the fourth day, let there be, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And when he says in verse 16, he made the two great lights and the stars. And when he says in verse 17, he set them in the expanse of the heavens all on the fourth day. To me, it just doesn't sound the same as if he had said that he uncovered them or he separated the clouds so they could be seen. seems to me the plain reading is God made them on the fourth day. And again, it makes sense to me anyway that God's saying, I don't need the sun to make light. I'm the source. I'm the maker of light. Don't get any ideas that the sun is so powerful you might be tempted to worship it. It's a pretty spectacular creation, but I made it. I made the light, and then I made the sun. So what do we need to do? We need to be in awe of the, and worship the Creator. That's what God wants us to do, not the creation. So he may be making that point by creating the light before he created the sun. I think he is. We're going to have to stop this. Let me just summarize some of this. Number one, God really is the Creator. He created the universe. He created life. All he had to do was speak the words. He's Almighty God, El Shaddai. His power is limitless. Nothing too hard for him. Number two, we must not ever do or say anything about creation that would tend to take glory away from God. Just because we have questions that we can't answer, we must not let that take glory away from him. And when an anti-supernaturalist comes along and says, oh, we know how that could have happened without God. We don't need God to explain that. We must, Christians, must not try to accommodate them. God calls them fools. It'd be wise for us to agree with God. And then thirdly, let's remember this, don't forget it. God the Son, God the Son who came to earth and lived as a man named the Lord Jesus Christ, died on that cross to pay for our sins, conquered death, conquered hell, conquered Satan, conquered the grave, rose again, conquered our sin. He's the Creator. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us Genesis chapter 1. Forgive us when we look at it and get confused. And forgive us when we look at what scientists tell us and think that somehow it doesn't fit and we wind up doubting you, Lord. We know that's from the enemy. Help us, Lord, to realize that you've shown us enough in your word and in your creation to cause us to, to fall on our faces in awe of you, the great creator God, in your power, in your majesty, in your glory, in your wisdom. You are an incredible God. Teach us to worship you well and teach us not to doubt you, but to have great, strong faith that you put in our hearts, that you know what you're doing and you've known what you're doing from the beginning. And we don't have to worry about that. Lord, the questions we can't answer, we pray we just trust you. And Lord, thank you that you've made us curious. We want to understand as much as we can. But Lord, please don't ever let us take any of the glory away from you to give it to so-called science or to give it to men or, to, or, or even Christians, Lord. The glory all belongs to you. 
So thank you for revealing this truth to us and giving us your word. We pray it in our Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.